on. Okay, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. All right. It's not working, huh? Well, it just goes along with, with the way this week went. All right. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 22 to 25 this morning. I've already said that this book has been a very rich theological book which has had its purpose of deliberately, a, a deliberate intention to provide encouragement really to, to those who are God's children, those who are listening, those who are following, those who are learning as they're running in this race that God has called us to, has put us in after we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that a growing, growing knowledge of God will always increase one's faith to cause believers to hear and to see what God is doing and where God is ultimately bringing us. There is a destination that God's bringing us to. And if we take our eyes off of the goal and start looking back, we will not finish the race. But if we keep our eyes on the finish line and continue to grow in our understanding of what awaits us at the finish line, well, you will conclude that there is nothing better that God can offer you or sufficient to replace what God has given you in Christ Jesus. Paul told the Roman church, he did not spare his own son, but deliver him over for us all. How will he not also freely give all things? See, what God started is like this small, in a sense, snowball that is going down this snow-covered mountain and it's getting bigger and bigger and it's just going to take over everything. See, God will give us all things. But as I mentioned last time, there's a problem. We don't think on heavenly things as we ought to. We don't think on heavenly realities as we ought to. We don't think about the privilege and blessedness we have in Christ Jesus as much as we should. We are distracted constantly by being overloaded by unnecessary information. We live in an information dump age, don't we? And there's enough information where you, you can get it 24-7, seven days a week, constantly. But most of it is not worth anything. It doesn't do anything for you. And not only that, it robs you and crowds out your time so you are not thinking of eternal things. 
See, we should be growing in our understanding of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus as our Savior, but how much more do we know about him? How much more do we know about what he's done for us? Abraham Kuyper said that there is not one inch on this planet and universe that Jesus Christ does not reign supreme. If there is anything worthy of praise in all the universe, it is summed up in one person, and that's Jesus Christ. In fact, you and I and every other human being that ever lived on this earth for the past 7,000 years has been created for the presence of God. Every single one has. He is supreme in everything. If you think about it, when you look up in the sky, he's, he's supreme over all the galaxies that you, your eyes can, lay, can see from the earth or through a telescope. He is really supreme over all the endless reaches of space, even places that we don't know anything about, like uh, the ends of space where we can't even reach. He is supreme over really the earth from the top of the highest mountain to the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. He is supreme, yes, even over the weather. He is supreme over the hurricane and over the tornadoes and over the earthquakes and over the monsoons and over the tsunamis and over floods and over snowfalls and blizzards and everything that you can ever imagine Jesus Christ is supreme over all that see how much do we know about Jesus how much are we thinking about these particular things there's a controversy going on in the news about the 9-11 memorial that's going to be happening very soon. And the controversy, if you heard it, is this, that there's not going to be any clergy or prayer at the event. Even though from the beginning of this tragedy, prayer and ministers of all types have been a consistent thread for the past 10 years. Now, I'm sure that the mayor of New York City has his reasons why he wants to ex exclude clergy. But in my observation, it's a good diagnosis of our society as a whole that God's just not welcome anymore, especially the God of heaven and earth and the God of the Bible. He's not welcome. Why? Well, Paul told the Roman church, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And he even went on to the next verse in chapter 3, verse 18, to show them that they are suppressing the knowledge that they already know they're going to be accountable for, to God for everything. So we live in a world in which doesn't help us at all 
learn more about Jesus Christ or about what God is doing. So again, this morning, I would like all of you to ponder every day what a difference Christ makes. Because what God offers us in Christ Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished is immeasurably superior to anything else now and forever. So we have come in our time, in our day, to the actual fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. To Jesus Christ and all that he has actually brought. And our text this morning, as last time, is designed to help us understand what we have not come to in our race and then what we have come to in this Christian race. Now, if you look at verse number 18 of chapter 12, it tells us here, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That's what I covered last time. So we haven't come there. We came to Mount Sinai. We came to the law, realized we couldn't fulfill the law by ourselves, then understood by faith, hearing the gospel, that Jesus Christ fulfills the law. He makes us right before God. He makes us perfect before God. So see, Jesus Christ makes all the difference. So now the law no longer can condemn you because he satisfied all of its demands completely and totally. So see, Jesus Christ absolutely makes a difference when you come to him and believe in him. But there is something quite encouraging in this passage of Scripture. And if you notice in verse 22, it says this, But you have come to Mount Zion. Now that's, that's good. You have come to Mount Zion. So knowing what awaits us at the finish will help us to run with greater endurance. Because it gives us understanding as to where we are standing in regard to the Lord, and in this case, a biblical Christian is one who is standing in the favorable presence of God, and that means they can approach God in a welcomed manner. They can approach God only because they have received Jesus Christ, only because they have a mediator between them and God, only because... They have been sprinkled with his blood and have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's the only way we can approach God in a manner that is not devastating. So today, let's together lift up our eyes and see what awaits us at Mount Zion. Because in verse 22, it says this, you have come. Now, I want to direct your attention to this little phrase here because it's in the perfect tense. Now, that's something hard to pick out sometimes, but in the Greek, it is an extremely important tense. In fact, 
One Greek scholar said the perfect tense is the most important exegetically of all the Greek tenses. And why did he say that? He says because the force of the perfect tense is simply that it describes an event that completed in the past has results existing in the present. Or, as another linguist said, the perfect tense is used for indicating not the past action as such, but the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. In other words, those who have come to Jesus Christ. He performed something so perfect there that presently and daily it has implications in your life. In fact, one of the implications in the text is you can actually know where you're going. And you can actually know when you get to where you're going and get to the finish line what's going to await you. That's incredible. You can't find that anywhere else in the world except God's word. And so therefore, you become a very privileged character just to be able to listen to this and what God has done to you. So I pray that you look at yourself that way. But before we look at the actual text, I want you to notice something in verse number two. It says that we have come to Mount Zion. Now, Zion. Now, that may not mean much to you. It probably doesn't mean a whole lot until you realize what Zion actually means in the minds of those who understood it. A little historical road I want to go down as far as Zion is concerned. It's found, of course, first of all, as a Jebusite fortress. In other words, the word Zion in the story of David, King David's conquest of Jerusalem, David captured the fortress of Zion and made it his royal residence. And seven years after, became, when he became king, he named it the city of David. So Zion came to be known as the city of David. But later on in biblical history, it was referred to, when we refer to the Temple Mount, you meant you refer to Zion. In fact, uh, in several passages of Scripture, it gives this indication. Now, the city of Jerusalem, when it expanded, the term Zion referred to a larger area. It trans when they transferred the ark from the city of David, which is in Zion, the Temple Hill brought both an extension and a reduction to the territory that is named Zion. But the point is that there's a close identification between Zion and the hill where the temple was. So the temple precincts became the primary Zion in people's minds. So reference to Zion in the prophetic literature and also in the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, the temple area was, in the mind of God's people, the place where God dwelt. So when, when you heard the term Zion, the people immediately thought in their mind, that's where God dwells. That's where I can go approach God. That's where I can bring my sacrifices. That's where I can go get my sins forgiven. That's where I can go get my prayers answered. That's where I can find a mediator, the priest, to come to and take care of things. So in Zion, 
In Psalm 48, it mentions that God is in the midst of the temple. And then it says, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her courts and her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and never. He will guide us until death. In other words, listen, Zion was a place in people's mind where God dwelt. If we go further with this, we find also in the Old Testament that the dominant idea of Zion as a dwelling place of God and a place where God is in the midst of his people, not this just God dwells there, but God is there, he's in their midst, and he's there for the people, became something that the people understood that Zion meant. In fact, in the same way the pillar of fire and cloud stood in the tabernacle in the wilderness, God dwells in Zion. In day and night he dwells there. Also, when Jerusalem became David's capital and Solomon had completed the temple and the glory cloud filled the temple then Jerusalem became the place in which the was known as the dwelling place of God the Bible tells us that God loved and actually chose Zion to dwell there and to speak there to the people God is a speaking God God is a communicating God and the people knew that they can get answers from him he wasn't like a dumb idol that people carried around he was a living God and that's what Zion meant to people in fact in scripture Zion was meant as the city of God the destination of pilgrims, both Jews and Gentiles alike, who along, for a long time longed to be in God's presence because they were far away from Jerusalem and sometimes they couldn't make it there. When they did come, they longed to be there because they knew from the Old Testament prophets and from the word of God that was being spoken that God was there. So Zion's position became very prominent and important. When we come to the New Testament, the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up this motif about Zion and he begins to tell us like he did in chapter 10, chapter 11 verse number 10, for the city it says forward to the city with foundations who what? whose architect and builder is God, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So now he's going and past the earthly understanding of Zion to the heavenly understanding of Zion. That, listen, when everybody comes to the end of the race, there's going to be a heavenly city. It's not just going to be an earthly city. It's going to be an eternal city. And so, again, he's picking that up, and Zion was to be a shadow of the heavenly city. And the New Testament also looks forward to the recreation of the heaven and the earth. And of course, the New Jerusalem will happen in the end times. And at this time, Zion will be the city on the great mountain in Revelation 
21 and verse number 10, and from Zion a river of life will flow within its walls. We sang about that this morning. But today, the Temple Mount refers to, actually Mount Zion referred to a hill uh, south of the old city of the Armenian quarter, not, the temp- not to the Temple Mount, was really a, an apparent misidentification of where it really is. And so pilgrims mistook the large flat summit, the highest point of ancient Jerusalem, for the original site of the Jewish temple. And of course they realize now that's, that wasn't the original site. Nonetheless, we can't conclude really, and the main point of what he means by Zion is this, and this is what's in the mind of the people, that Zion, as a term, refers to the dwelling place of God, where God is present, and a distinction is made of all those who long for the presence of God, so that everyone who wants to can go there. Everyone who can go there is accepted there with no fear of the presence of God. That's what Zion actually came to mean, and that's what it really should mean for us this morning as we think about what the passage is saying to us. So back in Hebrews, there's a sharp contrast between Mount Sinai and the experience they had there and Mount Zion is really meant to show the drastic difference Christ makes in our approach to God the Father. That the sense that Mount Sinai is, when someone thinks of that, is that it's, we should be very cautious in our approach to God, so keep back. But on Mount Sinai, Zion, excuse me, a believer finds encouragement to come boldly into God's presence, like Hebrews 4.16 tells us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you see, when one becomes a biblical Christian, the whole economy in which they belong is changed. It becomes grand and glorious. Our destination becomes something of great hope and encouragement. And the atmosphere is quite different between the two mountains. One has an atmosphere of fear, and one has an atmosphere fear of a festival, a festive atmosphere, as if one has finished, as I said already, a great race successfully, or they have finished a great battle and won, and now it's time to celebrate. When you get done with a run, you celebrate it. When you get done with a battle and you win it, you celebrate. That's what you do. And you rest and you relax afterwards. Well, that's where he brings us to this morning in our text, that the second point that I was making, and on the second part is that those who are in Christ are not heading for fear. They are heading for a festival, and the festival of the joyful economy of heaven, and that's what we find right here in our text. Now, in other words, we are heading for home. And home is here described as another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. At Sinai, it is a picture 
of a frightening encounter with God at Mount Zion, it really must be appreciated as being decisively different because believers are brought to a place where they will enjoy close and delightful fellowship with God and constant access to him. So through an act of faith in Christ, one can encounter God through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God becomes approachable. In Christ, God becomes approachable. So you want something to look forward to after this past week? Well, here we have it. What are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to Zion because here it gives a list of at least seven characteristics to what believers are headed for and should look forward to. Of course, this morning I will only deal with three of those. And I want you again to look at your text in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 because again it says very, very clearly, but you have come to Mount Sinai, excuse me, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, we are given a series of rich and powerful images. And these images are there because they are, they are there actually stacked up on top of each other in rapid succession. And they're meant, they're meant to impress upon your mind and your heart the joys that are to be for all those who know Christ no matter how hard life gets, no matter how many difficulties that we have to deal with on this side of eternity, that will not be our lot at the finish line. At the finish line, everything changes, and it never goes back to what we knew before. In fact, what we knew before, we'll end up forgetting. Because the glories and supremacy of Christ will be so vast that we will be lost in that ocean of knowledge and understanding and his presence for all time. And it will be a grand experience. See, that's what Mount Zion is. It's a city of the living God. And so what follows Mount Zion are synonyms pointing out the reality of what is ahead. And I want to stress that word reality because I'm not talking about things that are written in a children's book that people think, well, that sounds good, but it doesn't sound like it's real. No, the Bible is speaking in terms of reality, that by faith, I am already there at Zion. You who know Christ, you're already there God wants us now to be thinking about what's already ours in Christ Jesus. And no one could take it away. No one could rob it from you. No circumstance could change your position in Christ Jesus. And we must be dwelling upon that if we are going to be successful in our race as believers. So what I am saying is that this Mount Zion is the city of the living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, it is a real place. 
In fact, if you look back to chapter 11 and verse number 8 and 10, verse number 10, it says that for he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So it's talking about Abraham there. And Abraham's, as well as every Christian's longing, looked far beyond earthly things and displayed a longing for a heavenly city, a city whose planner is God. He is the, he is the technician, that is the Greek word there. He is the executioner of the plan, the designer. God is the actual framer, the builder of this higher and eternal city to which we are heading, which is ours already. It's also our heavenly homeland. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, he already said, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It is also, and I'm getting to this, in chapter 12, verse 28, an unshakable kingdom. Therefore, verse 28 of Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which, is, which cannot be shaken, that's the kingdom we're heading to, and then it is a, an abiding city which is to come. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking a city which is to come. So bring these all together, and we must conclude that the city, the kingdom, the heavenly home is an objective reality prepared by God, ready to be revealed at the appropriate time, but it's already ours. This is very similar to what we sang this morning. This is very similar to what Jesus told his 12 disciples when he ascended into heaven. What did he say to them in, in John 14? He said this to them, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, right? For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, what? There you may be also. See, that's the promise we have. That's what Jesus left his disciples, and he went to heaven. That's what he leaves us. We have the same information. Matter of fact, we have more information than they had. And so, therefore, we are more privy to what God has given us, that in, it is faith alone that can make the prospect of an eternal city built by God real so as to fix our eyes upon it. This, mean that, this means that the city God builds has a foundation, and those who dwell there have permanent dwellings. You can't get flooded out. No disaster can remove you from it. It's going to be permanent. 
you're going to be permanent citizens. You're going to find that living there is going to be truly safe, truly secure, and truly fulfilling. You will never want to leave. So this one thing we must notice that the Holy Spirit of God is doing in all who are believers. And what is that? Is that we desire something better. God puts it in us. The more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more we want of spiritual things, the more we really want to go home. So if you have not learned it yet, I pray that you will learn it. That this world and what it offers can never really satisfy you. There is nothing, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy you. Oh yes, when you were dead in sin, without Christ, a dead world may satisfy your dead heart for a short time with its husks and its empty vanities, but no longer once you come to Christ, it cannot do it. It will not do it. So certain pursuits in life are really vain for a believer. Once you received by God's grace, Christ, you have nobler desires. You have a stronger and sharper and more passionate desires than you ever had before. You want, as Hebrews eleven sixteen says, you, it says, but as it is, they desire a better country. See, we have greater desires, deeper desires, that God gives us desires to draw toward heaven, desires to keep us stretching out like a runner for the finish line for heaven. And at the same time, he draws us away from the world and away from the world's glitter. And I'm talking about those who have truly come to Christ and have known something about better things and about brighter realities. Have you not discovered that this world and in this world we have no home? We have no security. We have no real safety. We have no true rest for our spirits on this planet. And my friends, that God has designed it that way. We actually live in a very violent universe. If you ever thought about it, we live on a ball. Traveling at 67,000 miles an hour through space around a churning fireball. That's a dangerous place to be. Anything could happen. And not only that, the world is temporary and it's falling apart. And we're in the times where the Bible says there's going to be, well, storms and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, right? And these are birth pangs. Just like a woman is pregnant and she starts feeling those pains more and more as before she gives birth, we're in times in which everything is moving towards the end. Exactly what God said in his word. Right? So are you surprised that these things are happening? I hope you're not surprised. Because we live in a very restless place. Everything is shaking loose or will shake loose. Our home is yet beyond. And by Scripture, we are looking for something better among unseen things. We are strangers and sojourners as those believers who have gone before us. 
We are dwellers in this wilderness just passing through and we're heading for our perpetual inheritance in the city of God. See, I, so I, I hope that these scriptures do stir your heart to be a, a bit more homesick when it can, when, especially concerning your present existence on this earth that your homesickness would be that for the presence of God that as a pilgrim you will never feel quite at home and comfortable here on earth that you will groan in your in your soul for the heavenly dwelling. And the more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more you will sense this. The more you have knowledge of the word of God, the more you will sense this. And you'll know it. And then you'll live according to it. And when you'll live according to it, your faith will grow to depend and trust in what God says to us in the word of God, that this place, this city of God is real. It is real, more real than the things you, you see. And we have it already by faith. So see, for Christians, our final home is not this world. Our citizenship is in heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible is telling us that such a place is only given to those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. In fact, this city is so real that the Lord makes sure that we understand its security. Where he tells us in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10 that the city of God is secure because, because of this reason. The source of the city is God himself. And it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to this great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So coming down out of heaven is just giving us a picture that this new city is not tainted by this old world or any of its remnants. It is brand new, made by God, and it is secure for that reason. And also, it tells us the city of God is secure because God permeates its very presence. You know, when Revelation gives you an understanding about God's presence, it says it like this in Revelation 21, 11, having the glory of God. This city has the glory of God. And it, then it says this, her brilliance was like very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. That's a picture of God's presence, meaning that it is so clear that the glory of God and the presence of God shines through to every single inch and nook and cranny there. You cannot go anywhere in the city where God is not there, and you know it. So God's presence is there. And then also, it is a city that is secure because the city walls allow only God's own to enter. Now, this is interesting passage of Scripture in Revelation 21, in verse number 12. It says, It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. So its gates really promise protection, and at the same time, it promises free access. Its walls stand as a visible reminder that all people do not have access to God. Now, the walls are described 
here as great and high. It is obvious, though, the high wall will not be needed for defense because the city will have no enemies. There will be no armies that come up against it. No one could take the city. The walls would be symbolic of God's protection and security and the exclusion of everything that is evil and all who don't belong there can never enter it. And that's why in Revelation 21 and 8, it is written for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, that the city of God will exclude all that we know so well on this earth. So the faithful on both sides of the cross will be the only ones who have fellowship with God in the New Jerusalem, the city of God, the final destination of God's children. Now you may say, again, it sounds like, it sounds like a story from a children's novel. It's not. It's the final word from the living God about where he is bringing us to. It is the truth. It is not a lie. We should stand on that by faith. So consequently, I and you must go there. I and you will prepare to go there and should prepare to go there. But mostly, I and you must desire to go there. See, why would we want to go there if we love it so much here? Are you anticipating your heavenly dwelling? Are you anticipating as a runner in this long-distance run to, to make it to the end where this is what God offers you? Have you ever sensed that there's more to life than meets the eye? There's more to this existence than, than I know. Did you ever experience the groaning of your inner man for something more? A groaning yearning for your real home, for your heavenly dwelling. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever experienced that as a believer? You should. Because you've come to Mount Zion. You come to the city of God. You come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It is already yours. And God wants us to think about that. He wants us to have our minds transformed by that. Now, if you look again at our text in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it does say you have come to Mount Zion. Now, to be assured of this, that the most attractive thing about this city is that it brings into play the idea that God's presence is there with his people, that he is the living God. He has been always the living God. 
He is the one who speaks to his people, who communicates to his people, who responds to his people, who interacts with his people, who dwells in the middle of his people, who lets his people know, I am there and I am God. And when you come to Mount Zion, you have nothing to fear. Not one thing do you have to fear. I have taken care of everything. I am concerned about the hairs on your head and I'm concerned about the ants that crawl on the ground. I am concerned about every single detail that anyone could ever think of, and I've taken care of everything for you. That's who God is. That's what he communicates in his word. He wants us to be assured of that. He wants us to know that. In fact, this, this term living God has been used three times already in Hebrews. I want, I want you to take you back for a minute and look at a few passages. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 12. Now, both of these times, it's used in the context of warning. God's warning people. About what? That God's living. Look what it says in, in verse number 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from what? The living God. He's saying to the congregation there, make sure in your congregation, make sure about the people that are around you that they don't have an unbelieving heart. Why? Because someday they have to stand before a living God and they're not going to say a word. Because that living God is also the judge. So it's warning the people there. Then, then again, he uses it in chapter 10 of Hebrews in verse number 31. And, and in the same way he uses it, it's, it's that of a warning. And look at verse, chapter 10, verse 31. It says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of what? Of living God. He warns the people, you don't want to fall on the wrong side of this God. He is living and he is more powerful than you'll ever imagine. You don't have an argument against him. You cannot win against him. He is a living God. He is an awesome God. He is a God to be feared. He is a God that will deal with you. But here, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, he's using it in an encouraging ways. Where the people of faith are heading, where they're heading... And when they come to the city and enter it, they are assured of God's living presence. In other words, when you get to the finish line, you're going to actually experience in full measure the full glory of the living God, which you cannot experience while you're on this earth and in these bodies. And it's going to be awesome. Matter of fact, it is so awesome, it's indescribable in human language to be in the presence of the living God. 
the God who created the heaven and the earth, the God who created you, the God who's given us the Bible, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who's not going to withhold anything from us for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this God. And then he also says in Romans chapter 9 that, listen, I'm, and I must stress this, that the only ones, the only, only believers who have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ are going to experience the positive side of the living God. Where in Hebrews 9.14 he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now we serve the living God. In fact, when I get there in Hebrews chapter 12, there is a grand, simple conclusion, practical application to all this theology, and it's simply this, that you have been called by God while you're running through this, in this race on this earth to serve God, and while you serve him, to recognize that you're to serve him with awe and reverence. So, we have come to Mount Zion in verse number 23, or 22. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then it says this, just a couple more things. To myriads of angels. Now you say, well, why would God want us to know that when we get to the finish line, we get to the city of God, there's going to be a bunch of angels there. Well, actually, the terms he uses here in the Greek means the angels are assembled for a festive gathering. It's, it's a word used here to mean an, an olympic size multitudinous gathering to celebrate a joyful occasion. So here in Hebrews, it is the true festal gathering with the good angels who have so long a time ministered in God's service and has ministered to bring the gospel to the world. Remember when Moses got the law, who were, the, who were ministering? They're angels, right? In fact, it was the apostle Peter who related to us the interest angels have had all along in the plan of salvation. They even wonder about it, where Peter said to the people that he wrote to, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So angels are curious about some things. Maybe they're curious about aspects of the plan of salvation but the point being made here is that we're going to be in the city of God in this joyful celebration alongside of all the eternal angels could you imagine that standing there worshiping God and beside you maybe Gabriel maybe Michael maybe one of the seraphim or that, that ministered before the throne of God right there next to you. To me, you know what? That's very unusual, but very wonderful to think about. And 
just like the city is real, what's happening in the city is real. So see, we're, we're, we have no fear when we are meeting together with the holy angels, worshiping God side by side. That's incredible. Where could we ever get information like that except God's word and from God himself? And then in verse number 23, it lays on us this, that we have not only come to the city of God, to the holy heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, but in verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Man, this is really stacking it up for us, that believers are going to assemble with the rest of the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before them, and they are called here the firstborn. And the firstborn is refers to here as, it refers to people. Firstborn people. Now you say, well, what about those people? Well, they're a special group of people because they are enjoying something. What are they enjoying? They are enjoying their rights as the firstborn because of their union with Jesus Christ. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Now, what does this mean to us who really don't live in a country that practices the right of firstborn? Well, it means that we are all, as believers, in a society of, we're, in, we're really all a society of elder sons. In modern day vernacular, it means this we all get the big inheritance. We all get the big inheritance. If you got saved and you died, if you lived a long Christian life and you were in this long race, doesn't matter what part of it, you all get the big inheritance. There are no second or third or fourth sons and daughters in the church. Everybody is firstborn. That means everybody gets the full inheritance. God's not holding back anything from us. And then he says in that passage of Scripture in verse number 23, something very important. He says, and we're, we're, we come to those who are enrolled in heaven. Kings, many years ago, used to keep a register of names of the faithful in their kingdom. And so it says in Roman, I mean Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, who are enrolled in heaven, names written on a permanent roll in heaven, signifying who should enter and who is in the membership. See, is your name inscribed there? your name on that roll? Wasn't it Jesus who said to his disciples, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven? That means, on the other hand, if you don't know your name's recorded in heaven, it's not cause to rejoice. It's cause to say, oh me, I'm in trouble. I have to stand before this terrifying living God. I have no argument before him. And wasn't it Paul who said to the Philippian church, 
whose names are written in the book of life, and then in Revelation, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices an abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's the joy of being a Christian, that we know Christ, and we have come into the membership of his city. No one's going to get in who's not on the membership. doesn't matter what they've done here on earth. doesn't matter how many times they went to church or what good things they've done if they're depending on that for their salvation. The ones who are on the rolls are those who have come by faith to Jesus Christ and believed in him alone that he can forgive their sins, satisfy the justice of God, and bring them into a relationship with God. When that happens and they live for the Lord, their names are written on the membership. So we run the race here on earth with all its difficulty with this thought. You know you have already come to membership in God's heavenly city. This is not my home, but I am a member of the eternal city of God. Now tell that to somebody across the aisle or at the checkout counter, and they're going to think you're crazy, of course. But what's so amazing about it, it's true. It's real. And so, therefore, that's what we think about. That should transform our heart. Because in chapter 13, verse 14 of Hebrews, he says this, For here we do not have a lasting city here on earth, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's where we're heading. That's where we're going. That's the promise of God for us. And you know what? That's encouraging. And I'm only halfway through it. I didn't even do everything I wanted to say about these passages of scriptures, but that's the encouragement. So don't walk away discouraged when you know this is yours. But if you don't know Christ, then you should be very concerned about your eternal soul. You should be very concerned about where you're at with God. Because remember, either you're going to be in a terrifying position as in front of Mount Sinai under the curse of the law, or you are going to be in a favorable position before God because of what Christ has done in your place, because Jesus Christ has made the difference in your approach to God. I don't have to approach God in fear, but I approach God in joy, knowing what's ahead of me, and living my life each day, understanding the great things that are before me, and anticipating more than ever. Yes, we, we want to have our life on earth. We want to have good things on this earth. And God does give those good things to us also. But before us is something much greater. Cannot even be compared to what we have here on this earth. And so the Lord wants us to know that. So are you a member of God's city? Is your name on the rolls? Is it inscribed there by the hand of God? 
written in the blood of Jesus Christ? Is it there? I pray you know it, and I pray it would encourage you that you do know it. And I pray that you would live according to knowing those things in a way that pleases God, right? Because remember this, real evil is anything that doesn't please God. Anything that doesn't please God, that's evil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. I must admit, Lord, this week has been a very trying week. It has been trying even more so for other people who have lost their homes, have lost, have been displaced from their homes and maybe not even able to go back. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would hear their prayers and answer them according to your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, in this time of need, supply their needs as only you can. And I pray also, Lord, that in the time we all have left on this earth, that you would just give us the understanding from your word to think about these things every day, the things that are before us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a source of encouragement. It would be a source of joy. It would be a source of delight to know that we are, we have come to the heavenly city of God, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to myriads of angels that we're going to fellowship with and worship with together, the sovereign and living God. And that, Lord, we have come to a place in which our names are written in your book, in the Lamb's book of life, in the membership of, of the city of God. Thank you, Lord. We know that it's been Christ who made all the difference. There's no way those things could have ever happened unless Christ accomplished everything he needed to on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us now to worship and praise you as we partake of the Lord's table, that we may again be aware of these elements that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that secures our salvation. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I just want to mention to you uh, that this morning we, are, we do have...